Awesome. I'm here. I made it. Um, yeah, well, I came across the story and I was blown away by how little attention it was getting in Canadian media. Or like, it, it gets attention from like uh, the Ottawa Citizen or whatever, the like the local papers in every city. But it's always just like a quick update on the trial and like a few hundred words and they don't really do it justice. And so on Substack, that's like part of the benefit of Substack is I wrote, I could write 3,000 words if I want, whereas um, if I was writing for the... I don't know, the National Post or Ottawa Citizen, they, they would limit it to like 500 words and it's got to be uh, ostensibly straight reporting, but really they have a bias. I'm, that, that's why the tagline of my Substack is opinionated investigative journalism, because I don't really believe that there's such a thing as uh, journalism that's completely unbiased. So rather than pretend to be completely unbiased, I just kind of lean into my bias. Uh, that's oh. pretty cool. Sorry, I was just going to add there. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But I didn't add that to mine. So the opinionated part of your title, that's to let everybody know that you have a bias. Now, do you want to kind of let people know where your bias is? If we uh, want to want to sure. talk, touch on that? Well, I write for an outlet called The American Conservative, right? <laughs> so it, my bias is conservative, but like I don't pigeonhole myself. Um, I have plenty of left-wing views. But I, I would consider myself a centrist, but like a centrist 10 years or 20 years ago in Canada is now a far-right extremist. Um, and so you were talking about the Coots case earlier. I, I can't, I'm not really qualified to talk about that because I haven't followed it. <laughs> but I have been talking about, uh, yeah, I mean, the Helen, I thought it was pronounced Helen Grew, but apparently I just learned it's Helen Gruce. Um, and there's not much I can add to it that's not already been reported by Donald over the past few months, right? Like my, a lot of my article was just um, recapping what happened and like the, the challenges to tell the story in a very digestible way for someone who's never heard the story before, for an American audience, for example. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I did the best I could to tell the story of Helen Gruz in two or 3,000 words. And I was lucky that one of my friends on Twitter, Jordan Shaktel, which you may or may not know him. That's I, I wrote the article on his Substack because I knew he had a bigger platform than I did, and I knew that he wrote about COVID often. So like he he had tens of thousands of people who cared deeply about COVID, whereas my Substack is not about COVID at all. And so I wrote the guest post, and really, the reason why it, the article went so viral, I think, is because he already had such a big platform to begin with. <laughs> And so he deserves a lot of the credit for hosting my article, I would say. Um, and I, I like writing guest articles on Substack because uh, I get to steal his audience, right? A lot of his audience subscribe to me. And now his audience will subscribe to you. What, what a fantastic uh, piece you wrote. First of all, I want to tell everybody it's worth your time, despite what Chris says about you know, he based it uh, much of it on on my research and everything. Yes, but he brings a fresh set of eyes and analysis to it, and he has done that magnificently. And it's long form. There's a lot of detail there, but it starts with a good summary, and it's an excellent place to 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 start about the Helen Gruse case. And so many Americans did. Uh, I am just blown away. Millions, and also, as I say. Chris from Australia and and from the UK and from Italy, 
uh, I, I'm getting communications and hits and views all over the place, and it's all due to your article. Um, hey, how about that fundraising for Detective Groose? Why don't you tell us what happened there? Sure. Well, I'm. It's probably one of the proudest moments I have, like as a journalist. Like I've been writing for maybe like two or three years. I've been writing for a decade, <laughs> and so like usually what happens is when I bring a story and it has impact, it'll get somebody fired <laughs> or somebody will resign in disgrace or somebody will, uh, I don't know, like have their reputation, reputation tarnished because that's usually what happens when I expose corruption, right? Uh, and so I, I'm very happy that this case, when I had impact, it actually um, raised, I think since I wrote the article, it's raised about $25,000 Canadian, which is, a lot of money <laughs> and, and I read that she's already spent $40,000 on her legal defense right and so now the fund is up to $40,000 so I'm hoping that at least what she spent so far has been covered maybe right and and uh, I looked at it this morning and there's some very in, there's a very interesting observation to me anyway is many of the many of the donations now are like $23, $37. Why? Because Americans made them and they're being translated oh. into Canadian dollars. So you can tell if if it's coming from America. And many of the comments say too that it's coming from America. Now, as you know, we had uh, a trucker's convoy in Ottawa in February, January, February 2022. And many of the people who donated that, donated to that uh, in Canada, had their bank accounts frozen. Now, there was this big thing, uh, they tried to make it like it was a huge American uh, underground thing to fund the, and it wasn't at all. People were given 50 bucks here and 75 there and everything. But once again, and your story has lifted it to a new level. Uh, back, I think in August of 2022, the title of my first article or one of the first articles about Detective Groose was Worldwide Interest in Detective Groose Case. And, and in fact, uh, famed uh, New York Police Department detective Frank Serpico, as in the movie Serpico, uh, Pacino, Al Pacino played him in uh, the movie Serpico. He's following this case closely. And uh, lately, he, he has come on board and announced that he believes it's a cover-up that the Ottawa police are covering up, and that, in fact, where there's criminality or incompetence involved, and I'll paraphrase him here, the, that they, they want to protect themselves so much that they don't care about innocent infant lives. That's the way he, he presented it. So worldwide uh, interest already in the case but Chris, your efforts have just lifted that to just just soaring, just soaring. Have you had anybody uh, uh, come and talk to you about uh, the case? Any any of your readers, um, any of your readers contact you or the comments on your Twitter or anything? Mm, well, to be honest, I've had so many comments on Twitter that I just haven't been able to read them. <laughs> or like, well, that says it all there. Okay. <laughs> Well, I've had a couple of people send me like nice DMs, but like nothing, uh, nothing that really jumps out. I would say, um, but yeah, I mean, 
like yesterday, all like so many big accounts retweeted it that I'll like go back and see like I missed 12 hours ago and it was retweeted by an account with a million followers. And I'm like, oh, like usually wow. like usually that'd be like the first thing on my radar. Um, but then it just slipping through the cracks now. I know, and for me, with the, that one little tweet, just linking to your article, was 7,200 retweets, something like that. I mean, usually for me, 50 or 100 retweets is good. Sure. A couple of hundred is really good. But 1,000 is just, wow. Well, now it's at 7,000. And it just shows uh, it just shows the interest. Now, Chris, you're Canadian. You went to school in Ottawa, and you have a master's in something from... Windsor, is it, as I recall? Western? Western. Okay. I'd like, to, I'd like you to tell us where you started in Canada. Bring us to how you got where you are and why you're no longer in Canada. Sure. Well, I usually don't like to make myself the center of the story, but I may as well, I guess. I'll, I'll tell you a quick background of me. Um, so I grew up in Ottawa. Like My first 20 years of my life I spent in Ottawa. And then I did my undergrad at Carleton, and I worked at Statistics Canada, and I did a master's at Western, and then uh, and then COVID happened, and so many lives got upended, right? And I don't know, it, it's a, uh, I don't want to play the victim. That's the first thing I don't want to do, because like, I have a very, uh, like people had it much worse than I did during COVID. Like, for example, we talked about the fact that I'm not vaccinated, right? And the... I like people sometimes like say like, oh, you're so brave for being unvaccinated. But it like I didn't have a family to feed <laughs> and I didn't have a job that I had to quit. Uh, and like if I had a family and a job, I would have totally gotten uh, like, probably Johnson & Johnson <laughs> because that's just the one shot. Right. Um, but yeah, no. I, so I was working. I was working at a university in America, getting ready to do PhD programs. And then my advisor got canceled. <laughs> and so I got canceled too. I got blackballed from PhD programs. I thought I was going to be an economist. Like I thought I was going to do an economics PhD. Um, and then when I got blackballed from PhD programs, which, uh, I mean, that's a whole nother story. We can talk about that. <laughs> um, yeah. So when I got blackballed, I was very angry at academia. And so I started writing angrily about academics and academia and I was blogging on Substack basically. And like, eventually I got less angry and just became more of a serious writer, but that, that's how I began writing. Basically I was just angry. Um, and yeah, and so I leveraged that writing on Substack to get a job at the daily caller, which is an American outlet, a right wing outlet. And then I, quit the daily caller to go back on Substack because I, I like Substack better, basically. Uh, subscribe to my Substack, by the way. I don't know how many people are watching this. I can't see uh, um, any metrics, but that, there's probably a few. Oh, what is Chris's Substack from Susan? Uh, if you Google it, it's Carl with a K, Stack, Carl Stack. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, just Google it, Carl Stack. Um, and so, yeah, and then, for the past year or two, I've been writing on Substack, which I got another job at an, an American magazine, but I'm thankful this time because I have the job at the American Conservative, but I still write on Substack as well. And so right now I'm kind of juggling several different writing gigs and I'm always looking for writing opportunities or stories to write about. Like if anyone 
uh, is is watching this and knows something I should cover. I'm like always looking for stuff to cover. I've been meaning to write about the Coots for, but I don't. I haven't really found an angle on it, or like I don't know. Like it's been something I've been thinking about, but I have to do the research. Basically, I have to like put in the time to learn all about the case, and that's like hours and hours and hours, right? <laughs> um, Okay, well, so that's a little bit about how I started writing on Substack and writing for these different magazines. Um, but a little bit about, so I, I was angry at academia, and I'm also very angry at the country of Canada. I'm very bitter. I'm a very bitter Canadian. Like, I left Canada one or two years ago uh, for all the reasons you might expect. Well, like, the COVID craziness was a big one, right? I'm very, when people ask me why I left Canada, the first thing I tell them always is, uh, <laughs> I tell them I can't get an organ donation, right? Um, it just like really, really rubs me the wrong way that I can donate an organ, but I can't receive an organ. And I, I don't know, on some level that's petty, I guess. But at the same time, it just feels terrible to live in a country that doesn't really want me to be a full citizen, if that makes like, not that I'm not a full citizen, but like, uh, they kind of, and it also sounds melodramatic to say they want me dead, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm angry that I can't get an organ. Let's put it that way. Chris, there's so many people who agree with you about, you know, it, it sounds like hyperbole. They just want me dead. No. No, they actually do want you dead, and we've seen that in a couple of instances where Canadians have been have been refused life-saving organ transplants because they would not inject this experimental, now proven to be lethal, uh, mRNA technology, and and they're still at it. Um, but I, I I wanted to say, you know, it's interesting. Your take on the Coots Four is, I don't know about it. I want to do some some investigation and, and get some details before I write about it. Well, isn't that like you? And I'm speaking to, to our audience right now. Chris's articles are so wonderfully detailed and researched. Um, evidence links, uh, any observations and opinions are qualified. And it's just a, a wonderful piece of journalism everything that he writes. And Chris, I would have been happy to have you on my squad undercover with the Toronto police any day because you're a detailed guy. Was it your academic background that got you to write this way? Or, I mean, there's something very special about what you do. Mm, well, back when I was an economist, like in my old life, I my dream job was always to work for FinTrack. Uh, which is, uh, because like, that's what I did. I tracked, uh, or that's what I wanted to do was like track down terrorist money laundering and financing. And, uh, I don't know. I, I was just always kind of drawn to that part of the world of economics or finance. And so when I started writing, I just kind of naturally gravitated towards, I guess, I guess you could call it investigative work. <laughs> my my bread and butter investigations, is, it's, it sounds petty, like, a, or I don't know. Well, I told you I started writing about academia. So my bread and butter on Substack is writing about academic scandals and investigating fraud in academia. 
so like a lot of my stories are about like professors who faked their data or or uh, wrote a fraudulent paper or plagiarized a paper or just like academic scandals like that that'll investigate and i'm actually trying to move away from that now because well for a couple of reasons <laughs> one um it's a it's a very small niche and i can't really make a living off of it <laughs> which sounds like i don't know like i'm i am still passionate about it but at the same time i have to kind of find bigger fish to fry if i want to make a living on substack there's only like i have say five or six thousand free subscribers on substack right now and pretty much <laughs> i would say maybe like 25 percent of them are have phd economists or economics professors uh and uh so i've kind of tapped out that market i would say <laughs> like and so i'm trying to expand into other topics and i guess helen grooves is one topic of or just like i've done two stories on crime actually and i'm just realizing this for the first time and those are my two most viral stories <laughs> so maybe i'm destined to be a crime reporter um well like the other story my number one story of all time was called it's that it's the number one top popular on my substack it's on my front page it's called his name was seth smith and it, it was just a story i did the exact same thing as the helen Cruz story basically i just walked through the details of the case and it um went super viral and people loved it <laughs> and so maybe i'll become a crime reporter <laughs> Or another another area that I'm trying to expand into is immigration, um, because that's also something I'm passionate about, and it's also like a, one of the most important issues in the world, and it's also one of the people are interested in. There's a lot more people interested in open borders than there are people about fraudulent economics papers. Well, I I wondered about your choice of Europe because, uh, frankly. Europe has seen an absolute invasion of millions of Arab and African single men without their women, without their wives, without their children. And uh, and yet you chose to go there. I understand in some in some cities in Europe, it's absolutely stunning that the that the um, original population has basically been displaced in politics and even just walking down the street. Can you tell us a little bit about your observations uh, about Europe in that way? And I'm, I'm confused as to why you would go to Europe. I'm confused too. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a <laughs> an honest man, an honest man. Go ahead, Chris. Well, I'm a little bit lost of like where I should settle down, right? I, let, I, like it. I don't feel very comfortable putting down roots in, in Canada for many reasons, like a big, Another, like this also sounds petty, but another reason why, um, so my high school in Ottawa, this is a good example. My high school in Ottawa is 13% trans or non-binary. And that's self-reported from the high school's own statistics. So I choose to take it at face value. Like I don't have any better statistics. And so, it sounds petty to say like, oh, I don't want to start a family because there's too many trans and non-binary people, but I don't feel comfortable sending my kids to school in Ottawa, pretty much, or raising kids in that environment. And so uh, 
that's that's just one reason why I love Canada. I just don't think Canada is a good fit. When I when I speak to Americans about Canada, what I always tell them is like, okay, like if you were in, in Canada, would you leave? <laughs> and they always say yes. And so I, I'm like, okay, well, that's the same reason why I'm leaving. Like, the same reason you don't want to live in Canada is the reason I don't want to live in Canada. Um, I, sorry, I forgot what the question was. Oh, you answered the question. Um, it was about your choice. And I, oh, was, yeah. I was thinking well, about I mean, Europe, but, but also Europe, uh, you know, has the same problems, probably 10 times worse, some of the countries there. Then, and once again, you know, and I'll say this, and people get upset when I say this, but it's so true. Okay, a million single military-aged men without women, without children, coming to a country are not refugees or migrants. They are an invading army. And I think if we look at the rape uh, statistics in Sweden and, and the troubles in Italy and Germany, uh, we can see this. I mean, the, the, the societies have fundamentally changed. And when, and I speak about this in policing too, you know, um, as I, I said the other day, if you're born in India and you come to Canada at three years old, and then you become a police officer 20 years later, you're a Canadian with Canadian values. You've grown up with it and such. But if you come to Canada at 30 years old from India, your expectations and your impressions of police are they take bribes. They do exactly what the politicians tell them. There's no rule of law. They beat confessions from accused people with everybody's knowledge, including the press, who will say during a press conference, have you beaten him yet, uh, Lieutenant? Uh, has he confessed? No, we're talking to him now, is what the police spokesman will say. And it's just totally foreign to, to what it is to be a police officer in Canada. But we have many police officers who come from uh, other countries as an adult, 30 years old, and you have to say, how does that change policing? How does it change our society? And pardon me for being on a rant, but this is, if there's no border, there's no country. Yet our prime minister said we are the first post-national state, like where Canada is the hotel room for the world. That's my impression. So what do you, how, how do you, how do you think that this uh, will impact your decision to either stay in Europe or leave Europe? I mean, what are your other options? Well, that's something I've been thinking about. Um, well, right now I'm in Italy and I just did six weeks in England. So I did six weeks in England, but now I'm doing six weeks in Italy. And then I'm going to six weeks in Greece and then I'm doing uh, Serbia and Turkey. Like, I don't know. I'm just kind of traveling right now. I am, but long-term, it kind of makes a lot of sense theoretically to settle in a place like Poland or Hungary. <laughs> like really, those are the countries in Europe I see the brightest future for. But at the same time, like my parents are in North America, right? So it can, makes more sense, practically speaking, rather than theoretically. For me to settle in a red state in the United States, so probably I, if I had to bet money on where I'll end up, like in a year or two from now, it'd probably be like uh, Florida or Texas or, or like someplace like that. Um, and speaking of migration in 
Europe. So I'm writing stories about migration in Europe, right? right? And my recent, my most recent story, which just got published one hour ago. So this is a good opportunity to talk about it. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting it to be published today, but I woke up and it's published. Um, and I'm going to send it out on my Substack in like an hour. Uh, it's published in the American Conservative, and it's called The Ballad of the Bibby Stockholm. Okay, and it's about a boat. It's about a boat called the Bibby Stockholm. And that boat is parked off the southern coast of England in a small town of like 10, 13,000 people. And the reason why I wrote a story about the boat is because it used to house oil workers, like in an oil bar. It's a barge. And I used to host like hundreds of oil workers. And it, the British government bought the boat and they filled it with 500 young men. There's no women or children. Uh, and they, they uh, parked it in that town. So that town is basically just a refugee town now. And it's sad. Like that's my main emotion from it. It's just sad. Like I, I spoke to so many of the locals. Like I went to the city where the boat is parked. And the number one thing everyone said by far was they were very confused and puzzled and angry and irritated that the fact that there were no women or children. Like if there women, if there were women and children on that barge, there's, it, it would be a lot more reasonable. <laughs> uh, so, but the fact that there's 500 young men on that barge and that that city now is just a host to like 500 young angry African men. Uh, well, I don't know, maybe it's a stretch to call them angry, but I, I would be angry if I had to live on a boat indefinitely. Like they're not allowed to work. <laughs> they're not allowed, uh, they're given 10 pounds a week allowance to spend. Uh, and they're, they don't have anything to do for like years on end. They're just stuck in the barge while their immigration papers are processed or their uh, refugee claims are processed. So what are they going to do all day? Like just sit in their rooms for 18 hours a day? Uh, no, <laughs> it's a, it's a disaster. It's a recipe for a disaster. It's waiting to happen. And that's, that. my story is just like, I talk about the barge, why it's parked there why the locals are angry like it, it got shoved down the locals throat without any consultation without their politicians having any say like the federal government parked it in that small town and the reason why they chose this small town is because like the boat was supposed to go in liverpool but the people in liverpool didn't want it and they were vocal and powerful enough to say no we don't want it so then it got shoved down this tiny town's throat instead so now there's just a like one of the most beautiful towns in England is just like a, a refugees camp right now. Yes, I've, I've read similar stories in Ireland. Uh, one small town of, uh, I might have the numbers wrong here, but it's pretty well. It was 700 people and they sent 400 male refugees, no, male invaders to this town to live in a couple of hotels that they had rented in some army tents. Unbelievable, uh, because that just changes everything. And the fact, look, these are young, healthy, young military age men. In Sweden, their rapes are up by something like a thousand percent, a thousand percent. And you look at the stats and it is the vast majority of it are new single age men without families, without women, without children. So what's happening with governments? I mean, uh, you know, how does this 
fit in? Why should the government of the United States not only leave the border open, but invite people in? Why should Canada's prime minister give a, a mass invitation to anybody to come into this country for any reason? Italy and all the rest of that. It almost seems it's coordinated, a plan. No. So Italy is a good example because the prime minister, I'm running a story about the prime minister's immigration policy. Uh, Georgia Maloney is the prime minister of Italy. Um, and she was elected as like a, she, like, like she was supposed to be like a far scarier, far right wing uh, fascist. Like everyone called her Mussolini when she was elected. And, and she's done the opposite of nothing on immigration. She's the, uh, like immigration has, or illegal migration has skyrocketed since she came. And uh, that's despite all her rhetoric about boats. Like she, her promise in the election was, I will stop the boats. Like I will close the borders. I will end um, like African migration pretty much. That was her promise. And then she's done the opposite. And so I've been tr puzzling, like trying to figure out why she's failed so badly. And I thought at first, like maybe she's she was just lied, or she was evil, or she's uh, um, yeah. I thought maybe at first she was just like stabbing her voters in the back. But what I came to the conclusion after researching it and after like speaking to a lot of Italians about it is that she doesn't really have much power compared to the EU, like. The EU is basically telling her what to do, and she's powerless to do anything. And in, in, for many reasons, she's powerless. Like one, like Matteo Salvini, who was prime minister a couple of years ago, I think, he tried to stop the boats. And when he physically, like he was the only one who actually physically tried to stop the boats and send back the migrants. And when he did that, he was arrested for human trafficking because he human trafficked the migrants like back the other way they came, which is like totally crazy. So the court system in Italy is stacked against whoever's in charge and the EU is stacked against who's ever in charge. And so pretty much the EU wants it this way. So it's this way. And I mean, same thing in Canada, like, I don't, I'm not sure who's in charge of Canada. <laughs> like. I'm not saying there's some grand conspiracy that Canada is um, being controlled by, let's say, the United Nations, <laughs> but uh, I don't think it's that far of a stretch to say that Canada is controlled by globalists. <laughs> Canada is a globalist country, and the way I describe Canada actually is like a, it's the headquarters for globalism. Like that's where they try out all the new policies, like before they <laughs> or like. Yeah, that's where they test out globalist policies. And I like I don't want to be too nihilistic or depressing for your viewers, but I don't think it's going to get better. <laughs> like we've already reached a point in terms of like the percent of the Canadian population that are immigrants or that like don't really believe in the national the nation of Canada that I grew up in. Uh, why though? Why are they letting the migrants in? Uh, well, in Canada, I will say a good thing about Canada, Canadian immigration policy is that, for example, like when the Syrian crisis happened a couple of years ago, uh, 
Europe was flooded with just like millions of young men or hundreds of thousands. I don't know the number, but Canada was smarter. Canada actually took families, right? Like, and that's one big difference between Canada and Europe. And so that's Canada is doing a better job at integrating Im immigrants into society compared to, uh, let's say France, like in France, they just have like ghettos of, uh, or not ghettos. Yeah, I guess ghettos is a good word. They're, they're very like siloed, whereas Canada is still siloed, but not nearly as much as Europe is. Europe, yeah. Anyway, so why is Canada taking <laughs> immigration, taking the migrants? My, I think the, the obvious answer is just uh, their cheap labor. <laughs> like their cheap labor, they don't complain too much. Uh, and it's good for GDP, not GDP per capita, but GDP, GDP in absolute terms when the country gets bigger, right? And so the Canada is controlled largely by just like a few powerful families. Like I used to know their names, but I forget them now. But like, uh, my point is that, well, probably you've heard of Agenda 2100, right? Or the Century Initiative which is the plan to bring in a hundred million Canadians by 2100. And I think uh, it's going to be way ahead of schedule. <laughs> like, I think we're going to hit hundred million way ahead of that. But, but how does that benefit the Canadians and the people who are already here? How does it benefit us by tripling our population to make corporate profits. That's pretty well, well it. I mean, we have we have Tim Hortons now buying apartment buildings. Tim sure. Hortons, okay, uh, owned by a Brazilian company now, I think, buying apartment buildings so that they can import foreign, or foreign workers because they say they can't get uh, employees right now. Well, of course, you know, golly, they bring them in, these foreign workers, they pay them whatever the minimum wage is or a little bit above, they give them a little bit of health care, and they put them up in bunkhouses. Is it any wonder Canadians won't do that? That's not to Canada's advantage, in my humble opinion. It doesn't benefit the people already here. We know about housing costs and the lack of housing, and yet we're still going to bring in a million, a million and a half people a year for the foreseeable future. And even uh, Pierre Polyev, who runs our conservative party, supposedly, and is supposed to be the great savior, is right on board with those numbers. Yeah, well, um, okay, so first of all, one big reason I missed when I said, like, what's driving immigration is uh, housing, right? Or like, a lot of like old stock Canadians own their houses, right? So it's good for them when the population doubles or triples. And so that's, that is a big reason. Like real estate is the number one industry in Canada, right? I think, um, but back to Pierre Polyev, yeah, I, I laugh. Well, like Pierre, he promises to fix the housing crisis and he promises to fix uh, the cost of living crisis, which is driven by the housing, the housing crisis, pretty much like housing and healthcare. Those are two big reasons why I left Canada. Housing and healthcare. I don't think they're going to get better, and Pierre Polyev is certainly not going to fix them. I don't think he has a plan really beyond 
his plan on housing, right, is like he's going to tweak a few regulations and like change some things around to build a few more houses. But that's kind of pointless when he's bringing in a million, two million people per year, right? Like what's a few thousand more houses? And so like I get that he's a better option than Justin Trudeau. And so I, if I had to vote between them, I would probably vote for him. Well, I, I might vote for Mac, Maxine Bernier, actually. <laughs> but uh, my point is that Pierre Poirier is tricking a lot of Canadians by just promising he will fix the housing crisis when really, like, I don't think he even thinks he's going to fix the housing crisis. He's just saying it. And it's just sad. Like, uh, I, I, I don't think you should trust any politician. Like, I, I don't trust any politician, right? But I especially don't, tr I don't trust him. Can, can I ask you, Pierre Polyev, along with his entire party, gave a standing ovation when they passed a law, the Liberals' law, and everybody in Parliament gave a standing observation, uh, standing ovation, to a law that criminalizes parents for wanting to stop their children from 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 cutting off their private parts. That's exactly sure. what it is. From sterile being sterilized, cutting off their private parts. Um, Polyev voted for that. He's been trying to back tack now. Oh yeah, the wind's changing. And Scott Moe in uh, in Saskatchewan has, is in a fight right now, I think, just to just to try and put a law in that says that teachers can't teach children that they're born in the wrong body and start socially transitioning them towards uh, sterilization and cutting off their privates without telling the parents like that should be an actual debate or question. My goodness. So uh, please comment about, about uh, Pierre and voting to criminalize parents who want to stop their children from being destroyed. Well, there's not much I can say really other than like, okay, so that's a, one thing about him is that, well, I, I'm changing the topic a little bit, but like when he talks about guns, for example, he doesn't ever, ever say that a Canadian would need a gun for self-defense, even though he might believe that privately or he might not, I don't know. What he always says is we need a gun for hunting, All right? So like, he always kind of uh, compromises on his principles, I would say. Or, yeah, I mean, like, you had it right. Like, he puts his finger in the air and, like, they do the polls and, like, they see what's polling well. And I guess uh, now, well, in England, for example, support for, I forget what the exact polling question was, but it was something like, uh, it was a... Uh, support for transgenders basically has gone from 60% to 30% over the past two or three years. And so that's, that's kind of uh, the way the wind is blowing. And so I, it makes sense that he would backtrack on that question. Now um, I, um, I've seen articles about this, I think, but I, I've seen like contradicted things on it. So I wasn't sure what Pierre actually voted for. Like, I was confused because um, he also voted for or against conversion therapy. Are we talking about conversion therapy or is this something else? Yes, he, he also voted against conversion therapy and made it, made it a criminal offense for parents to stop their 
their their children. Yes. And everybody says, oh, you can't kidnap them across the border. No, no, no. The law that was implemented makes it quite clear. Even 10 people standing over a child, praying with the child that they accept that they are male, their male body, uh, that's conversion therapy. And it's a criminal offense now here in Canada. Sure. Well, I already told you, like, that's a big reason why I left Canada is because I can't see myself starting a family there. I, um, yeah, well, so I left Canada because I can't see myself starting a family there. And the government is a big part of that, right? Like, uh, the government, again, so much, I feel like silly saying this all loud. Like it, it's easy to write this on Twitter, but it's different when you talk about it aloud. The government, it feels like in Canada, like the government owns your, your children. You don't own your children. And it, that's just um, part of being, uh, again, this, I, I, don't, I should stop apologizing for my actual opinions, but uh, that's part We've of, been uh, there. We've been there, Chris. i tell you what I'd like to do. You know, <clears throat> Jason. Well, sorry, I was going to say part, that's like part of living in a communist country. <laughs> like that, say that, again? That's part of living in like a communist or socialist country. <laughs> and so the big yes. overarching reason why I left Canada, like all these little things, are just part of like Canada is just like a, a socialist communist country. I agree. I agree. And uh, we have a refugee driving a car right now, uh, Jason Levine. He's a refugee from Ontario and he pulled the sure. plug. He left everything he had, uh, he and his wife Paula, and they took the kids, oh, one kid, and they went to Alberta and, and, now they're a happy family in Alberta, which is, I think, a different country than Canada. Jason, can we hear from you? Are you capable of speaking? No sound, buddy. Can you hear me now? Now, yeah. yes, please. Excellent. Well, I'll just fact check you. I have two children, and I had two children when I left Ontario, I'm pretty sure. Counted them. I got a car seat for one of them. Uh, they're now nine and seven. And yeah, that's true. Um, we were in the education system here. There was strikes going on in COVID. So we pulled our kids out and homeschooled them. And as everything was being locked down here, uh, we were getting text messages to our phone when we just went to the gas station to get propane for the barbecue to feed our family. And we felt that that was way, way overreach from the provincial government to actually track our cell phones and send us messages if we were away from our lockdown location. So we packed, we didn't just pack up, uh, Donald, we actually sold everything, liquidated everything, put it into a four by eight trailer, put it behind my Volt, which is a electric car. And we, yeah, we relocated across uh, Canada to Alberta, to a virgin piece of land where there wasn't even a driveway for the car. And that's what we started there, Chris. We, we rebuilt there and uh, set up shop. And now we are podcasters traveling across Canada. I'm now headed straight into Ottawa right now to the belly of the beast. Uh, so wish me luck. Uh, and then we're going to go see what Chris and Tamara, Chris uh, Barber and Tamara Litch trial is, is all about today. Um, now, I did have a question to you, for you, Chris, about uh, Detective Helen Bruce. Uh What attracted you to that story? And why did you start covering that story? Being somebody who was in Canada but not there anymore, what attracted you to the Helen Bruce story? Mm, well, I've been 
it's not like something I wrote in one or two days. I've been thinking about the Helen Grew story for two or three months, I think. And I've been trying to search for an angle for it. Um, I, I think what attracted to me, what attracted me to the story was that I saw it. Well, like I came across it for the first time and I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Like, why haven't I seen this before? And that's my whole reason for writing it is like people, I, I was surprised that I didn't know about it. And that even when I did know about it, it was like covered very poorly. And so I felt like I could do a better job and I felt I needed to tell people about it. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wish I had more of a personal connection to it, but really I just saw an interesting story and I thought, I thought it would do well. Cool. There we go. Now we're back. Now we're back. Now, yeah, you saw it was an interesting story, but when you dug into it and you found out that it's a hearing for her job and uh, she's being accused of insubordination on an order that required her to stay away from looking at COVID, the vaccine, or connections with it on desk, she was basically ordered not to look into that, and then she did anyways. Now, on an insubordination level, you get it. But on an oath level where they're supposed to ignore unlawful orders and it's up to the discretion of the officer, Donald, please correct me if I'm wrong, but on your oath, you're supposed to use your own discretion. And it sounds like that's exactly what she did. She used her discretion on an, uh, on an order that she believed was improper or illegal and went ahead and investigated anyways. Now she's suffering the consequences. So first, Donald, I'm going to ask you, did I get that right? No, is, no, uh, you didn't. You, you okay, didn't get it right. It's okay. And, and it's, it, it's a very simple point, but it's an important one. Evidence came out that her entire squad was ordered not to talk again in the office or have anything to do with mentioning COVID, vaccines, anything like that. She was not to do that. It was not a direct order to not investigate at the time, it was not a direct order. And therefore, she went and investigated and she even met with the chief of police, chief slowly, uh, about vaccine injured police officers and that she was preparing this report, this criminal investigation. And that's what happened. But uh, as we saw, um, someone from inside her squad told a bunch of half-truths to the Globe and I'm sorry, to the Canadian Broadcasting Company, the CBC, and then uh, somebody complained, and she was suspended on February 4th, 2022, and only then was she told to stop her investigation and okay. not continue it. So that's a very important point. Uh, she's not charged with insubordination. And at the trial, we actually found out she's not charged with illegally looking at police records. They said, the judge said, and the prosecutor agreed, she was on duty and she had every right to do that, every right to do what she did. But then she was stopped. What they have her charged for is for phoning one of the parents because she wasn't assigned that investigation. And as a quasi-lawyer, and as an ex-cop, I know there's no, there is no property in an investigation or in a witness, and that's what this trial is all about. Does Detective Helen Gruse or any police officer in Canada 
have the right to investigate as they see fit according to their oath and their, their duties or do the politicians and big pharma direct the shots. And that's what, what, that's what this trial is all about. And, and that's, that's really summarized well in Chris's article, but he lays out the, everything in entire detail. So, um, Back to you guys. I just wanted to to correct that that small but important detail. She was only ordered to stop the investigation after she was suspended on February fourth, two thousand and twenty-two. Okay, thank you, Donald. Uh, can you update us on whether or not that investigation is closed? Did somebody else take it over, or is it still just waiting? Like, do you know the status of that investigation? I do know the status of the investigation. And on August 14th, 2023, which was the start of the, the, the initial five days of hearing, I was there and covered it. And the audience, the court audience, and it was packed, they just gasped when they heard that Detective Groose had passed a criminal investigation package to the uh, professional standards officer, Sergeant R. Buthnot, and that he had done nothing with it and had not... Uh, proceeded with the investigation, even though the Pfizer documents were in this package. We heard that and everything. And I believe that that, that officer, Sergeant Arbuthnot, is guilty of neglect of duty. And I think that we even have to start thinking about obstruction of police under the criminal code, because we know now that Detective Helen Bruce was correct, that there is a connection between the vaccine status of a mother and deaths of breastfeeding babies. So no, there's no criminal investigation going right now in Canada about this that we know of. And don't forget, um, uh, Public Health Agency of Canada was involved in heavily influencing the police investigation into Detective Bruce from March 2022 early on. And they still are, as far as I'm concerned. I have a question. Oh, sorry. Well, one of the commenters that popped up on the screen said, um, oh, my God, she was charged during the Freedom Convoy. And I think a big reason why she was charged was because, uh, like, just, like, the zeitgeist in Canada was so crazy at the time, right? Like, everyone was foaming at the mouth and wanted to punish their enemies. And so... And now, like with a couple of years of hindsight, it looks like, well, to me, at least, it looks like it's so incredibly silly. And it seems like she's winning at the trial. So my question is, is there any chance, like, I'm, I don't know anything about law. <laughs> is there any chance that the charges would just be dropped? Oh, for like, sure, yeah. They, yeah. If they know they're losing the case and it makes it's making them look silly, like, uh, like, is there any case, any chance that charges would just be dropped? Like, is that a thing that might happen? Oh, for sure. Yeah. At any time, the prosecutor or even the, the hearing itself could dismiss the charges. But I would think at this point, she would probably want to see it to continue so that she could show that she did nothing wrong. Um, you know, one of the challenges when people are charged and then the court or the prosecutor drops the charges is they go home and they celebrate. They pop the wine and they enjoy their evening. But accountability should be the next step. The accountability of whoever brought the false charges or false witness or, or was prosecutorial misconduct. I, I would believe even if they were dropped, that she should 
consider an accountability stage, whether it's a complaint, uh, bring it forward to the, the integrity commissioner, or even go litigation in a civil matter to bring forward uh, her costs, bring forward her lost time, and then even possibly sue the union. As Don has pointed out a few times, the union has completely dropped her from even covering her for her legal expenses. So even if they dropped the charges or dismissed the charges or withdrew the charges or stayed them, I would highly recommend that she continues to battle by uh, bringing forward an accountability stage for who put her, in that, put her in that situation to begin with, and including the union. Now, Donald, what do you think about that? If they just dropped the charges and let her free, should she follow up and, and hold all these people accountable, including the union? Oh, I, I think so. I think there's a reluctance to drop the charges, though. Um, I think that if they do convict her, and believe, and and I'm writing about this, there's a tremendous conflict of interest throughout the entire thing. If they do convict her, I believe that it's going to head to the Supreme Court of Canada. I believe she has the moral and the backing, the moral and public backing, to do that. I I, I really do. So, but you know, they they don't want to drop the charges. They don't want to drop the charges because. To do that is to admit she was correct. And they they did this all for a political reason. Don't forget, they wiretapped her. They wiretapped her and her family under the emergency provisions, wiretap provisions of the criminal code, where they didn't even have to swear an, aff an affidavit. They didn't have to bring evidence or anything. And they just went to the uh, judge and they said, look, we have... Uh, and don't forget, this is supposed to be something where there's a hostage situation, imminent imminent uh, danger to lives, a kidnapping, uh, you know, anything. Um, but they went to the, the, they, the police, went to the judges during the convoy. They presented a list of names. They said it's emergent, emergency, urgent, and they wiretapped every one of them including Detective Bruce, and she had nothing to do with the convoy, nothing at all. But what happens under that emergency provision is you're supposed to come back in 36 hours with the proof, with the affidavit, with the exhibits that you normally would use to obtain a wiretap, and they never came back, said everything. It was just they were using the convoy to just see what they could see on Detective Bruce and a bunch of other good Canadians. No charges were laid as a result of those wiretaps. And that's that's an, an incredible abusive process. Now about her police union, they went along with the jabs. They backed the jabs. Now don't forget, this is a police union that if an officer is charged on duty with say, sexual assault, they will pay the lawyer, uh, to rep pay a lawyer to represent that defendant. If a police officer is charged with beating someone or, or, or with uh, stealing something uh, on duty, the union, the police union, which is called the Police Association of Ottawa, they will back that officer. But in this case, they did not. They chose not to. Why? Because, you know, they want her convicted. They want her convicted because if she's not convicted, it means that they're in the target sites for approving the mandates that have injured and killed so many Canadians. Yeah, I wonder if the uh, NCI report will make that issue moot 
And I wonder if they can drop it from mootness like they did with uh, Brian Peckford and his travel ban, because the government removed the travel ban, they made it moot, and then they dropped the case, or at least the court did. Now, with the NCI coming out and saying not safe and effective, do you think that would bear at all, Donald, on the matter? Are they bringing it forward? And without naming names, do you know if they're going to bring any witnesses forward related to the NCI or some testimony around COVID? I have no idea. I know there's some expert medical witnesses and also an expert police officer or two to say the same thing that I say, which is right out of police college, even the newest rookie on the job has all the authorization and duty to investigate anything that that police officer wants to. He or she can do anything and investigate anything, investigate anything. That's her job. That's her duty. And we have set it up this way in Western society, according to Sir Robert Peel's principles, so that police are not run by politicians or mobsters because that's the way it used to be. And I'm sorry to say, right now, most police officers in Canada, the vast majority, have not acted according to their oath. They do whatever the political regime in power tells them to do. Rule of law is long dead in Canada. So, I mean, there are some very fundamental issues at stake here, which I think is one of the reasons why the the uh, the Americans are picking up this case. It has far more worldwide significance than just some copper in Ottawa that was charged. Um, Chris, wh- what do you think about that? What are the big issues that you think are driving the millions and millions of, of views and copies of your article? What are the main issues that non-Canadians see? So when people ask me about the legal system in Canada, again, I totally don't know the law. <laughs> I'm not a legal expert, but my the sense I get is that there aren't so much like in the United States, like they have the constitution, they have a strong constitution and that kind of, that really constrains uh, lawmakers or police in what they can and can't enforce. But in Canada, I get the sense just from living there my whole life that um, judges in Canada can do whatever they want, basically whatever feels good. <laughs> and that I think uh, like people aren't saying Americans are not saying like, oh, look, like this is happening because Canada has a weak constitution or has a weak legal uh, framework. But I, I think uh, I think that's if you're asking me like for what a fundamental driver of it is, is that it's well, that's the same thing that allows. Um, so in Nova Scotia, you've probably heard this case, like there's like that new law in Nova Scotia that says. Uh, um well, there's uh, black offenders in Nova Scotia have automatically now have their sentences mitigated just because they're black, right? That's that was like a big legal thing in Nova Scotia the other day and or the other year last year, and that's because our constitution has a phrase in it or sort of charter of rights and freedoms. I think not constitution. It has it has that clause that says everyone is legal under the law. Everyone uh, has regardless of race, ethnicity, blah, 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 unless it's an affirmative action program. So we we specifically have an affirmative action clause in our charter. 
and just like so many little things in Canadian law that make me feel like we just don't have a strong legal system. We just have, uh, we kind of leave it up to the judges and the people with like soft power to do whatever they want. Um, and that that's pretty much happening is what is happening with the Helen Gruss case, right? Like uh, they, they could have easily just not charged her, right? But they did because they felt they could get away with it because they can do whatever they want. And that, that sense of entitlement like uh, goes not only to the legal system, but uh, is everywhere in Canadian society. Like uh, the ruling class feels like they can trample on, even if like the majority of Canadians, let's say the majority of Canadians believe that uh, a parent should be able to uh, decide whether or not their children, their child, uh, like is allowed to wear, I, I don't know, that, that's not a good example. <laughs> My, my point is that um, I, that's another reason why I left Canada. I just felt constantly like not even that my rights were being trampled, that I just didn't have any rights, that the government owned me and the government owned my future family. And so I think that's a big reason. That's a, that's a big problem in Canada. <laughs> like uh, it, it's happening in the courts. It's happening everywhere. I can yeah, clear. Yeah, and I just got some stats just the other day. If you guys are watching Shadow Davis just a couple nights ago, he was talking about the uh, crimes against Aboriginal women. And there's this, there's this narrative in Canada that Aboriginal women are being picked up and murdered by European-descended males. But the stats have now come out that show that 90% of all violent crimes against Aboriginal women are done by Aboriginal men. So that doesn't fit the narrative. Now, even though it doesn't fit the narrative, they're still moving ahead with that narrative. If you look at the Truth and Reconciliation, uh, it's very, very clear in their report that they're still concerned that Aboriginal women and, and girls are being picked up and murdered by European-descended males. Well, that's just not even the, the, the facts. Now, another piece of that report that I found interesting was the average sentence for an Aboriginal male who's murdered an Aboriginal female or girl is 11.4 years, something like that. Whereas um, uh, European descent male, it will be 14 years. So even within the justice system on the sentencing side of things, the system's not fair, it's not equal. And uh, if you're a minority or a vulnerable class, they deem to be a vulnerable class, you actually get more lenient sentences, even though the crimes are the same. So, Chris, uh, as a reporter, even an opinionated reporter, what's your take on mainstream media where they twist a narrative way beyond even the mathematical statistics, and they still try and push the narrative that it's white males who are uh, abducting and killing Aboriginal women and girls, when in fact that's not the case at all. And then when Aboriginal males are convicted of it, their sentences are lighter uh, have they been uh, a white male in Canada? So what's your take on the narrative and then what's your take on the slant of the justice system where it isn't actually proportional to the crime and it's not fair across all Canadians? Mm, I actually don't think reporters are very evil and trying to like spin a narrative on purpose because they want to demonize white males. I think they're just largely stupid <laughs> like if, if you well no think about 
like when I was in university, if I if I think about who the journalism students were, like I I don't I wouldn't want any of them anyone with a journalism degree teaching my child anything or being in charge of any important decisions. Like Christopher, or no, she doesn't have a journalist. Who is it that is in charge of something? Oh, don't worry. Alberta about it. Premier Danielle Smith is a journalist. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm a journalist, so I can't. I can't really like. <laughs> I guess I. It sounds conceited to say this, but I consider myself smarter and better than other journalists. <laughs> uh, well, I. It's not really something you need a degree in, I would say. Like, I always wonder what they spend four or five, six years in getting a degree in journalism. Like, there's only so much to, a lot of it is just common sense. Like, <laughs> there's not like complex rules that you have to learn. It's just like write a story and like look at the facts of the story. Like, it's not, uh, I don't know. I have a lot of, anger at Canada. I have a lot of anger at journalists. I have a lot of anger at academia. <laughs> I'm trying to be less of an angry person, but um, I guess the question was, oh yeah, so what is twisting the narrative? So so if I, if I, if my hypothesis is that journalists aren't doing it on purpose, it's because they're stupid, then where is the narrative really coming in from? And I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer to that question. Like, it well, the, it ties in with like the residential school hoax too, right? With like all the bones that they found or didn't find. That that kind of ties in with like the same reason why they lie about the bones being found is the same reason that they would uh, like lie about who's murdering <laughs> missing in indigenous women, right? It's just a which also ties into why uh, indigenous criminals and or black criminals or any criminals of color in Canada get a lower sentence automatically. It's because uh, the soft bigotry of low expectations. <laughs> like uh, when Canada like says like, oh, like when Canada Canadians refuse to tell certain races that they should just accept responsibility for themselves they they just say like uh oh no like don't worry about it it's not your fault it's our fault like we're the settlers like everything you do is our fault it's a very paternalistic and uh i don't know it's it's white elitist liberal canadians who are journalists right like that's who journalists are pretty much they they just um treat other races like their children, which is a big part of the problem. And uh, the, I mean, it sounds trite to say this, but uh, it just uh, like if I, I, I don't believe our legal system should consider race as a factor, but they explicitly do consider race as a factor, right? In sentencing and for indigenous offenders and GLADU reports, right? That's what they're called. Um, Indeed, and if I can build on, no, no, it, it's, it's great. I look, I'm in charge of rants on this program. Okay, <laughs> you know, uh, we keep hearing. I mean, you, you've you have triggered me with the the residential school body scandal hoax. Um, not one body 
and yet uh, our prime minister put all flags to half mask, apologized profusely, got down on his hands and knees, basically figuratively, declared a national day of uh, truth and reconciliation, all that. Well, look, history. They say the victors write history. Sometimes. But as uh, Elon Musk says, even the losers can write history on Wikipedia if they have time. And he, he, he said it in a joking manner, but there's a lot of truth there. So we have this woke scenario, which is, uh, which is perpetuated and has been perpetuated by, frankly, and a lot, of, a lot of Indigenous people will agree with me on here, a hierarchy in the tribes that, have, that profit by pushing this narrative. Billions and billions and billions given to Indigenous communities and tribes and still no clean water. But we have all these, these other initiatives. Well, let's go back and talk historically, okay? You know, it's been really good for Indigenous people that they no longer have slavery as an institution. And many Canadians will go, what? What are you talking about? Oh, yeah. Slavery from time immemorial has been with us in societies and the the tribes of North America are, are no less guilty than that. Uh, and all you have to do is do some basic research, have a look at the museums in British Columbia, look at some of the Indian wars and French-English wars and conflicts of the 1700s, and you will know that there was a widespread uh, slavery as an institution in the tribes. Now, Joseph Brandt uh, fought for the English during the American War. He was a, a tribal leader. He brought his, <coughs> excuse me, brought his tribe to Canada when the Amer when the British lost uh, the United States. And uh, we have Brant County, Brantford, Ontario. Joseph Brant. He owned slaves. Some of them were black. Some of them were Indian. Some of them were white. He wasn't allowed to keep his white slaves, but he was allowed to keep his black slaves and uh, his Indian slaves when he arrived in Canada. How about that? But nobody pulls down his statue. How about the fact that many tribes in North America practiced cannibalism and ritual human sacrifice, including on the west coast of Canada, including in upper New York State, including down in the southern uh, Texas and, and areas around there, and genocide. Well, I mean, we, we think that these tribes all live together nicely and, and uh, paying attention on Turtle Island to the, the moon and the stars and keeping the land and the environment. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's genocide. Where are the Hurons now? Somebody tell me, where's the Huron tribe? Well, they were massacred in Ontario by another tribe. And uh, when the French were defeated by the English in upper state New York, and they left the fort under a white flag, well, it wasn't too long before Indians descended upon them, killed all the men, took the women, and 
had a victory celebration that involved cannibalism. This is all in the history books, folks. So, so I'm just saying, you know, when someone hits you with, 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 with this and you say, wait a minute, I made it through high school. I made it through university without knowing this. And you do some research and you find out it's absolutely true. You have to think, why didn't I know that? That's it. That's my rant. See, I'm the king of rants on this show. Well, I had another question for Chris. So, Chris, sometimes it's not the media. So you said, yeah, sometimes they're dumb. You think they're dumb. That's, that's possible. But sometimes it's, it's bigger than that. So, for example, Biden, Joe Biden, just the other day, uh, announced or said on, on an interview or during a speech that he saw the pictures of beheaded babies in the Middle East conflict. And then his national security officer themselves had to come out and say, no, he didn't, because we don't even have pictures. And then you follow the story further, and it, it turns out that the reporters that originated the story never said beheaded babies at all either. That part got added, sprinkled in at some other point. So in this case, the reporting was fine that there was there were babies that were dead but not beheaded. That was not part of the story. Then I got translated into 40 babies. Then I got translated into 40 beheaded babies. And then I got translated into the president himself saying he saw pictures that don't exist. So it goes beyond even the press themselves, the journalists themselves, into the government and, and distribution of that information. It's getting twisted along the way, like the broken telephone game when we were kids growing up. All the way to the point where now it's hard to let people know that, no, that was misinformation or disinformation. There is no evidence of 40 beheaded babies or any beheaded babies. I'm not saying there is none. There's just no evidence of that at this stage. Yet the president himself is out there saying it as if actually claiming he saw the pictures, which don't exist. So how do we combat that kind of problem as well, Chris, where it's not just a reporter? Because the reporting on that seemed to be fine. It was the distribution and then the propaganda that got put on top of that reporting by non-reporters. Um, what do we do about that? And what do you think about that? Mm, well, Joe, lied, Joe Biden lies every day. Or like he's lied for decades, right? So I, I don't think catching him in one, like for a normal person like that, that would be a huge scandal. But for him, like there's too many lies every day, every month, every week, for decades uh, to even count. So I don't think that's even a scandal. That's just uh, people have already forgotten about it, right? Um, and how do you deal with politicians lying to you? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think you just have to accept it and live with it. There's not much you can change in the world. <laughs> like, that's why, um, that's kind of why I left Canada, right? Like, I, I'm not, I'm not going to try and stay and change Canada. I'm just going to go find some little piece of land somewhere and live my own life and try not to think about evil people that rule the world. <laughs> I will like, is Joe Biden evil because he, he lies about stuff like that constantly for his own agenda? Yes. But is like, who, is there any better option? No, not really. Like, like you could say Trump is a better option, but I don't know. I, I, I think Trump lies a lot too. <laughs> I just wouldn't put your faith in any politician. There's, you, you can really only focus on yourself and your family. Like that, that sounds hedonistic or like nihilistic to just give up on making any change in the world. But 
I don't think you can change the world. I think you just have to accept it and uh, try not to be too mad about the fact that there's so much evil in the world. Um, you just gotta, yeah, I, I've just accepted it. I wonder if you have, Chris. I wonder if you have. You know, you say you want to arc enclave and just accept it and go away, have a little piece of land. But your articles are taking the fight to the enemy. Your articles are sounding the clarion to normal people who uh, about what's happening. Uh, I understand uh, wanting to just stay in your backyard and grow some tomatoes. I did that for a while. But I think that I, I, I think you're already in the fight, buddy. You might wish you could to uh, you might wish you could leave the fight and maybe you need a break once in a while. Maybe we all do, but you're well, in the easy, fight. It's easy to fight online. <laughs> like I, I get into a lot of fights online, and like even if I did have a piece of land, I could still like blog, right? <laughs> well, that, that's another thing. Like uh, a part of like England, like. I, I really do like Europe. Like, I love Europe. I'm traveling through Europe right now, writing stories about Europe. But I'm not sure I could even stay here because even if I did put down roots here, like, for the future of free speech is so bleak and the whole continent of Europe that, like, I wouldn't even, even if I just bought land and just, like, like lived by myself or, like, lived in a little patch of land and blogged, like, I don't think I would even be able to blog in peace. Like, I just need somewhere to blog in peace, basically, and I'll be happy. How about Alberta? I'm even thinking about it. Well, that's interesting. Or I went, in my family. I lived in Calgary for a month this summer, and I did not like it. And I'll tell you why I didn't like it because uh, I lived in the suburbs, and I just didn't like the architecture. <laughs> like that sounds like a stupid reason, but. The architecture in Europe is just like makes me so much happier. You walk around, there's like stone houses and like nice buildings and like old stuff. But then you you live in the suburbs in Calgary and like, sure, they're nice houses, but like, I don't know, they all look the same and they're all like plastic and or I don't, I don't know. It's just I find it I found I found it very depressing. And same with like downtown Calgary. It's like it's the same as like every other Canadian city downtown. It's just soulless, I think. And I, I don't want to be too mean to Calgary. Like, I went to Banff, okay? Let's put it this way. I went to Banff for a couple of days, and I would have loved to live in Banff. <laughs> so Banff, maybe I'm more a better fit for, like, a small town in, in Alberta than Calgary. But I don't think I can live in Banff. I would totally live in Banff in, like, a second if I could. I think you're you're right about big cities being soulless. And even some medium-sized cities, small cities of 100,000 now, we've got people shooting up crack on the streets of North Bay. <laughs> unbelievable. Unbelievable. But uh, this is where it is. But maybe, uh, you know, Jason, uh, you'd like to have a word about what you're doing in homesteading, and maybe Chris could find something there. Um, but just to say, um, you know, for me, this show has been a great show, wide-ranging topics, discussions, great discussions. Um, I'm going to have to go pretty soon. I, I, I think that Jason's on the road, but uh, and, and he's probably should probably let him concentrate. But I, I just want to commend you so much, Chris, for your work, 
You're doing a great job. Don't give up. Keep up the fight. Look how many millions of people just in the last three days saw your work or learned about the story because of your work. Wow. That's all I can say. Um, Jason, maybe you'd like to, to bring it home? I'm pulling into a parking lot here. I'm about to park, but uh, look, this was an awesome conversation. Chris, I really admire you uh, for, for doing what you need to do to survive and, and, and reestablish yourself somewhere else in the world. I hope you keep an eye on Canada, and I hope, hope over the next 18 months or so, we might give you some indicators that things can happen here. Things can be better. We absolutely are working hard to try and do exactly that. And today, the Chris and the action. I spoke to Chris yesterday, and it was clear that they're adding more days. So the, the Crown is going to be pushing to add more days. I guess they're not done trying to use up all his money. But I don't think they have a case here, Chris. So pay attention to what we're doing here in Canada. And maybe we'll see you back here. Not downtown Calgary, but maybe up in Drayton Valley, over by Breton, where we are, where it's beautiful, it's lovely. And yeah, we don't have stone buildings. But we certainly have some freedom up here. I appreciate all your time, Donald. Thanks for taking over. And to our producer in the back there, Paula, thanks for pushing the buttons and making things happen. I really love it. I really appreciate it. And I just found a parking spot. So you guys have yourself a wonderful day. I love you all. And God bless.